He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Here we see Jesus still in absolute control of everything. All that Satan has done to bring his power against Jesus, to seek to bring an end to the life of Jesus, and yet still the power of the gospel, the light of the gospel shines brightly into the midst of it. Just like the Apostle John writes in John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Can I, can I just step back and give you a reminder this morning For you to remember as you read the newspapers, as you watch the news, I dare say that it has happened in every generation that has gone before us. I know it has happened in my generation and will probably happen in the generations that come after me. We have made the statement, I can't imagine with how bad it is, how much worse it's going to be for my children and for my grandchildren. You've said that. You you probably have parents who said that grandparents who said that. It it seems that we live on this trajectory and the darkness when it settles in can be overwhelming at times, can't it? We look at the world and things that are going on around us and we think to ourselves, how did we get into this condition? How have things become so bad in our lives? How bad is it going to be for my children? How bad will it be for my grandchildren? But remember that even in the darkest of moments, even here in just a few hours when Jesus will be betrayed, when he will be arrested, when he will be crucified, it is all part of God's plan. God is still in control. And here we see Jesus in absolute control of everything. He's hounded by the authorities. He's betrayed by Judas. He's on his way to the excruciating death upon the cross. But still he is concerned that the preparations for the Passover would go according to plan. It's a wonderful reminder of the extent of the love of Christ for us. Imagine if if we were in circumstances like this. Imagine if we were just a few hours away from our impending death. We knew that it was coming. Imagine that it was not even as horrifying as death by crucifixion that Jesus was about to endure. Would we be nearly so concerned with making preparations for a meal like this? I dare say we wouldn't be. In fact, I'm quite certain that we wouldn't be because I know in my life, anything, anytime, diffi- anything, anytime anything difficult comes along into my life, my initial response is simply, God, why me? Why has this happened to me, God? I wouldn't be concerned with, with things like preparing a meal to share with my nearest and dearest friends. Even a meal of of significance like the Passover, like communion. I wouldn't be thinking of something like that. My mind would be all sorts of other places. Primarily, my mind would be consumed with, how do I get out of this situation? But Jesus, still in full control, understanding, knowing, planning what is about to happen, makes preparations 
for the Passover meal to be shared. If you go back to John chapter 13, we spent some time in John chapter 13 last week comparing the two together. Makes sense that we would do that because we have this Passover meal recounted for us in both of those gospel gospel exchanges. But in John chapter 13 verse 1 we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, get this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Knowing that his hour had come to depart. What was the method by which Jesus was going to depart from this world? It was crucifixion. He was about to be nailed to a cross. And knowing that this time had come, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He displays for them the full extent of his love. And this meal is Filled with the love of Jesus towards his people. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying to to his followers here, listen to what I say, watch what I do. I want you to understand the extent of my love for you. And in this meal, he puts on full display his love for his people. As we have looked at this, and we, we see the preparations that are, that are made for all of this, especially look down at verse 15 of Luke chapter 22, and discover the love, uh, the, excuse me, the depth to his love. It is absolutely unimaginable. He says in verse 15, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There's a a context in which all of this takes place, that Jesus has has made preparations for the Passover meal to be observed. You you find out about that in in verse 8. Jesus sends Peter and John, and he says to them, Go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Not an unusual request to be made. Someone would be responsible for gathering everything that was needed. You would have to have a lamb that would be sacrificed. You would have to take the lamb to the temple in order to have it sacrificed. You would have to gather together the bitter herbs. You would have to gather together the wine and all of the food that would be needed in celebration and observance of this meal. But, of course, their main concern was a very simple one. We can get everything that we have to have for the meal, but we're, we're not home. We're in Jerusalem. So, verse 9, they ask the obvious question, where, where would you have us prepare it? Okay, we'll take care of everything, but where are we going to eat this meal, Jesus? And Jesus, of course, still in, in full control, Obviously, they had no ministry office in Jerusalem or anywhere for that matter. And so, especially during this time, they they had been near Jerusalem. Quite honestly, they had probably been sleeping outside on the Mount of Olives, kind kind of camping out there on the Mount of Olives across from the Temple Mount area itself. And so, where are we going to observe this? And then Jesus tells them exactly what to do. When you've entered the city, verse 10, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. There's a... There's a commonness to it. Nothing out of the ordinary, nothing unusual. You're going to go into the city, and you're going to find a man who is carrying a jar of water. Follow him to the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He's going to show you a large supper room, furnished, prepare it there. It's just just a commonness to it. However, understand as well, there is an uncommonness to it also. 
In Jerusalem at this time, there are estimates anywhere from a, a quarter of a million to three million people who were in the city. I, I think probably the three million people range is a little bit of an overstatement. It must have been a preacher who made that statement, you know. Uh, gonna, we're going to err on the high side of this. But probably at least, let's say, a quarter of a million people in the city. And you're going to find a man carrying a jar of water. Probably are. There's a commonness to it. But there's also an uncommonness to it as well. Because it was usually the case that when it came to water jars, you would take the water jars down to the wells, you would draw the water from the wells, you would pour the water into your jars, and you would carry the jars back home. Not meaning to sound sexist, but understanding the culture in which they lived. This was usually woman's work here. It was usually the women who took the jar down to the well in the middle of the city, gathered the water, and then lugged the water jar back home in order to have it for the family. Men, on the other hand, carried the wineskins, small little bladder type thing that they would have. They would have the wine there, and they would, just, they would carry the wineskins around while their wives would carry the big jars of water. Chivalry has come a long way since then, I do hope. For some reason, though, this man, for lack of a better term, was going to be doing women's work. Quite honestly, it probably was all planned out by Jesus ahead of time. Probably all was taken care of beforehand. But I want you to think about something for just a moment. Indulge me for just a moment as we think about this man carrying water and providing a place for Jesus and his apostles to share the Passover together. We don't have a clue who this man is. Well, there's all sorts of speculation. You, you can read commentaries, you can read books, and people say that it was actually the, the mother and father of John Mark and they're going to Mark's home in order to share the meal together. You can research that on your own if you want to. Bottom line, we don't have a clue who this guy is. We don't know who he is. The only thing that we do know is that he carried water and he provided a room. That's it. And yet one of the most significant meals in all of history took place in this very man's house. Have you ever asked yourself the question before, perhaps, Is there any point in my doing what I'm doing in service to the Lord? Nobody notices. No, no great fanfare is given. No, no large crowds of people gather to hear when I teach or speak or pray or serve. No one takes notice of any of it. It is, it is for all intents and purposes done anonymously. Can I just say to you this morning that there is no service for Jesus that is insignificant or irrelevant? None. Recognize that in the great scheme of things, God has something for each of us. And it is not irrelevant. It is not insignificant. Here is a man that we don't know. I assume that when we get to heaven, he will be there. I look forward to the opportunity, perhaps, of, of meeting him. But as it is right now, we don't have a clue who he is. 
In fact, so much of the New Testament is filled with people that we don't even know their names, or maybe we know their name one time, and they are applauded, and they are encouraged for their service to Christ and to His church. Understand, no service for Jesus is insignificant or irrelevant. That's why Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The work you do for Christ is not insignificant. It's not irrelevant. And so Jesus tells them to go and and ask this guy where, where the, the room is. And in, in verse 13, that, that very thing takes place. They went and found it just as he has told them. Imagine that. They went and found things exactly as Jesus had said. They prepared the Passover. Of course they did. Of course they found it just like Jesus had said. Jesus never leaves anything to chance. Indeed, he can't leave anything to chance. It is in his very nature to be in control. That's why you can trust him. That's why you can lean upon him. That's why you can run to him, regardless of what is happening, because he is in control. And you can trust the one who is in control. It is interesting that in the midst of all of this, the need for security has has really led to a bit of secrecy in all of this. For one, it's a very strange way of identifying the house, isn't it? Why didn't Jesus just say, oh, you want to know where we're going to have the meal? It's going to be at thus and such a place. It's going to be at this person's home. It's going to be at this address. It's going to be at 1985 Carroll Creek Road. That's where it's going to be. He doesn't do that. He doesn't identify it in any way like this. There's a secrecy involved in this. Why? Well, I think if you go back to verse 6, you'll find out a little bit of why. We read of of Judas that he consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to these religious authorities in the absence of a crowd. The price is now on the head of Jesus. Judas is looking for an opportunity to simply say, here's where he's going to be and you can get him. But it's not time yet. And so Jesus, instead of gathering all of the apostles to go, he says, sends Peter and John. He deprives the other ten of knowing uh, about what is going on until they arrive at the location. Had they all known the location of the meal, why Judas would have simply alerted the authorities, the meal never would have taken place, and the institution of the Lord's Supper would never have been given to the church. So it's easy to think, of course, well, there you go. Jesus is driven by fear. No. Friends, understand that Jesus is never motivated by fear at all. He was greatly moved by his friendship to these people. In verse 14, we read, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, look at this, verse 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus and the others had had observed Passover meals. They've observed Passover meals together before this one. And yet now he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. Here was Jesus. He had reached into their lives 
He had called them by name. He had made them his followers. He loved them. And he liked them. And he enjoyed being with them. And he said, I have desired with earnestness. The phrase that is used here is simply this. With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. It is the very same word that was used of the prodigal son. You remember the story of the prodigal son. He is away from the father. He spent all of his money. All of his friends have left him. He finds a job taking care of pigs. And he was such a, in such a desperate state that he, he desired to eat the leftovers that the pigs wouldn't eat. That's how hungry he was. How desperate he was. And Jesus uses the same word here to say, I have desired this. I want to eat this meal with you. The Lord of the universe, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, the one who in the midst of the tumultuous sea speaks a word of peace and immediately it's brought into submission. The one who had turned water into wine, he now has a desire to spend the final hours of his life with these people. Can I give you just another reminder this morning? This very same Lord, every day of our lives, has pledged Himself with an intense longing to be our Savior, to be our friend. And He is far more willing to grant the awareness of His intimate presence with us than any of us are to seek that presence with us. He's called the twelve to be with Him. In John chapter 14, we read Jesus answering to the apostles, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you get the intense, personal nature of what Jesus is saying here? He says there's a relationship. There's a closeness. There's a bond. And this same Jesus who desired this time with his apostles desires time with his people. The, the question simply becomes, have you known his company have you known that in the reading of His Word, He speaks to you and you discover His will? How in fellowship with His people, He reminds us of how He operates and how He works. How He wants to be with His people. Perhaps we can think of someone with great significance, maybe, maybe a world leader, maybe, maybe someone that you, have, uh, that you have some sort of admiration for in some way, and you think, oh, how I would love to sit down and converse with that person. How I would love to just sit down and share a meal with that person and, and learn about their life and learn what makes them tick and learn about the things that they're passionate about. What would it be like to find out that that person you so desire to spend time with has an even greater desire to spend time with you, to know you? It's the way it is with Jesus. Remind yourself of that. 
remind yourself how very much he loves to spend time with you. The depth of his love is unimaginable. And in the midst of all of it, there is a clarity to his love that instructs us. In verse 16, we see this pulling out of what's happening in the institution of the Lord's Supper. Let's begin at verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. The context in all of this is a celebration of Passover. Passover celebrated the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. You, you've, you've heard the story before. God's people in bondage to Egypt. God sends the plagues. Finally, after the last plague, God prepares the people. He says to, or before the last plague, He prepares the people. He says to them, You're to sacrifice a lamb. Wipe the blood of that lamb on your doorposts at your home. And this evening, the death angel will come, and every home that is not covered by the blood, the firstborn son of that home, will die. So there is a celebration meal that recounts that. It's the Passover meal from when the death angel passed over their homes. And Jesus says, I've been looking forward to sharing this particular Passover with you. And verse 16 is vitally important as to why. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying all that was anticipated, all that was portrayed in the Passover was now about to be fulfilled. Moses' exodus from Egypt was about to be fulfilled in Jesus' exodus. His departure. And it's all going to fit together for them soon. All that had been portrayed in this Passover meal is about to be fulfilled in the death of Jesus. The exodus for Moses was an exodus from bondage in Egypt. The exodus for us in Jesus is an exodus from sin into eternal life. And as the Passover meal was shared, there was, there was a first cup of wine that would be given, and that first cup was drunk. And then they would recount the, the story of the Exodus, they would in particular go back and read from the Psalms, Psalm 113 through to Psalm 115. After the reading of those Psalms, the second cup was passed around, and then after that cup was drunk, there, there was the bread that was made available. 
it, it was the bread of affliction. It reminded the people of their persecution in Egypt and how God had told them, you don't have time for the bread to rise with yeast, and so make the bread without yeast, unleavened bread, make it in a haste, get ready, you're in a hurry, you're going to leave out of bondage quickly. And so the bread was known as the bread of affliction. Usually after the bread was given, there would be silence around the table. But in the midst of the silence in this Passover meal, Jesus speaks. And he says to them an astounding statement. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For the apostles eating this Passover meal, this was astounding. Not just that, that Jesus had spoken into the silence, but what Jesus had said into the silence. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying to them, I am the Passover meal. Everything that this meal reminds you of in terms of redemption, in terms of freedom, it is fulfilled in me. I am the one who brings this, not out of slavery in Egypt, but out of slavery in sin and to your own evil desires and to your flesh and to the power and control of Satan. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. And then when they ate the meal... And that was all completed. They would drink the third cup of wine and they would read again from the book of Psalms, this time from Psalm 116 to Psalm 118. And it is here as they're drinking this cup that Jesus says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do you understand the significance of what is being said to them in the midst of all of this? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, the very picture, the very portrayal of all I am about to do in this new exodus, in my departure and in leading you out of sin. Understand, I am this Passover meal. He's pointing out how the Passover points to something that is far, far more significant. When in the great celebration, God would gather his own from every nation, every language, every tribe, every tongue, and all would rejoice in communion in a way that had never been known before. And Jesus says, I will not eat this meal with you. I will not drink this cup with you again until I do it in my Father's kingdom. To understand this, you must understand the new covenant that God has made with his people. Jesus is saying that he is the Passover lamb, the sacrifice for us. Paul uses the exact same terminology in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so Jesus is accomplishing a new exodus. In the Old Testament, it was a liberation of families from bondage in Egypt. But in the New Testament, it is his death that makes possible liberation from bondage to sin and Satan into a new life. And by means of Jesus' sacrifice, God binds sinners to himself. And he brings them deliverance from their sin. And in the death of Jesus, there is both cleansing from, from both the guilt and the power of sin. It's a new covenant. 
It's not an old covenant that, that simply takes place with laws that are written on stone. It's a new covenant with God's Word written onto our hearts. And understand not just the covenant, but understand that the focus of all of this that takes place is on Jesus Himself. It's not on the elements. We make it so much about the elements, but the focus of all of this is on Jesus. This is my body. This cup is my blood. The elements of bread and wine were symbols of Jesus himself. They were to show this is a powerful portrayal of what I am doing for you. He says to us, that as we're gathered together and we celebrate this meal with one another, my presence is found in the presence of my people gathered together with one another to celebrate this meal with each other. It's why, it's why the meal is observed in the context of church setting. It's, 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 it's not a learn group meal. It's not uh, even a live group meal as we gather tonight. It's a meal for the church, the body of Christ gathered together. And there's the presence of Jesus in the midst of it all with us. But understand this. All of this underlines the importance of our communion with Jesus. We internalize the elements. We are saying to ourselves and everyone around, this is his body, this is his blood, and I internalize this. I believe this. I hold this to be true, and I identify myself with the one who gave himself for me. Kent Hughes tells a story, and I'll, I'll quickly close with this. Dr. Christian Bernard was the first surgeon ever to do a heart transplant. And one day he, he asked his patient, another doctor, Dr. Philip Blayberg, he said, would you like to see your old heart? <laughs> On a later evening, the, the men were standing together in a room at the hospital. It was in Johannesburg, South Africa, and Dr. Bernard went up to a cupboard and he took down a glass container and handed it to Dr. Blayberg. Inside that container was Dr. Blayberg's old heart. For a moment he stood there in stunned silence, as you can imagine. The first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his hands. Finally he spoke. He asked Dr. Bernard all sorts of technical questions about the heart, about the operation, about all of it. And then finally, he, he turned to take one more look at the contents of the jar. And he said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And he handed it back to Dr. Bernard he turned away and he left it forever. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what Christ does for us? Here is my heart. It causes me so much trouble. 
my heart that desires what it should not desire and doesn't desire what it should desire. Christ enters and he gives a new heart in communion with him. He gives a new heart. And when we celebrate, not Passover meal, when we celebrate communion, Lord's Supper together, we remind ourselves of the new heart that Jesus has given to us. And we remind ourselves of the sacrifice that was necessary for it to happen. We remind ourselves as well that one day Jesus is going to eat this meal again and all of his people from all of history, from every place, will be with him to thank the one who's given us a new heart. This cup is a new covenant, a change that has taken place, a new covenant with, with superior relationship, the internal dwelling through the work of Christ, superior forgiveness. The old, the old covenant couldn't remove sins, it just covered them temporarily, but in the work of Jesus, our sins, we are told, are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And here in Jesus Christ is a salvation that is superior, a salvation that is eternal. Have you entered into that new covenant with Him? Father, at this moment, we thank You again for the work of Christ on our behalf. Father, we thank You that we are able to sing with the hymn writer, My sins, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sins not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Father, today I pray there would not be a single soul here that is not intimately aware of this new covenant with Jesus Christ that we celebrate together at every Lord's Supper and that we remind ourselves of every time we gather. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with loving gratitude to the one who loved his own who are in the world. Having done that, he's loved them fully, completely through the cross on our behalf. Father, I pray that you would prick our hearts today with your word, through your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.